<laughs> Welcome to another episode of the NLP Highlights podcast. Uh, today we have Sachin Gururangan. Uh, Sachin is a researcher who specializes in socio-technical approaches for training LLMs. He just finished his PhD at the University of Washington, so it's a very exciting time. Um, and he is starting his uh, next thing at the Lama team at Meta next week. So congrats on that. It's like you're at the center of the universe. Basically, everybody's uh, looking forward to what Lama's going to be releasing next. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Sachin. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is a really good time to do a podcast. Um, yeah, I had this kind of week lull. So um, yeah, really happy to be here. So could you tell us a little bit about like um, who is Sachin? Like I, I know you pretty well, but maybe other people don't. Yeah, so uh, yeah, my name is Sachin. Um, I just finished my my PhD at, at the University of Washington in NLP. Um, I've been in the UW NLP community since around 2017. Um, it's been a while. I, I started kind of doing my master's there and some kind of random professional master's sort of program uh, that I kind of applied to at a whim and um, got hooked into NLP research and was really embedded into uh, not only UW, but also organizations like AI2 and, and Meta throughout my PhD. And I've uh, been really lucky to kind of work with lots of really great people there. Um, and so, yeah, my research has broadly just been about uh, kind of not only training really efficient language models but uh, and effective language models, but really understanding the relationships between their kind of downstream behavior and the, the data that they're exposed to and uh, during training. And, um, you know, my, my work has really tried to urge folks to, to think more about language variation in, in, in training data, think more about customization um, after training. And um, I, I really think that, you know, focusing on these aspects not only is desirable from like an ethical or responsible perspective, but um, I, as we've had a lot of success kind of showing that being careful about your data it leads to really efficient scaling and, and lots of really cool cap new capabilities that I'm, I'm excited to talk about um, with you today. Awesome. Um, I, I want to dive in right like into like the customization aspect and like talk a lot about what do you mean by that and like why do we need it and how to achieve it at the large scale. But I, first I need to like find an embarrassing thing about you. And you know, one thing that comes to mind is that you're pretty bad at surfing when we went surfing a few years ago. Did you get any better? Not really. Uh, yeah, for context, uh, well, uh, Waleed and I went to uh, San Diego last year and uh, for like a surf weekend, and uh, we both did pretty poorly. <laughs> I, yeah, I got to hype myself up a little bit, but uh, yeah, Waleed, you didn't hype yourself up, so you kind of met expectations, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I live in sunny SoCal, um, or have been for the past couple of years, and have have not gotten better at surfing. Um, but we'll see. I'm, I'm moving up to the bay pretty soon, and I hear the surf's pretty good up there. So maybe I'll get better. <laughs> for fairness, you've been very busy building awesome things, which we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so it's okay. Uh, hopefully, your Lana team will give you some chance to uh, to still do some of that. <laughs> So let's start by something that, you know, like what is what is the case today? Like how do we train language models today? And, you know, what is wrong with that? Yeah, and, you know, the language models that are being deployed today are like so incredible. Like there, there's so many things that we 
you know, when I started my PhD, like we never thought was would be possible <laughs> to do with these models, and and we're you know it's really blowing me and lots of researchers away, right? Um, and it's kind of the, the, I don't know the, the standard way that we train these systems is you know some large corporation or some large collective pre-trains uh, a transformer language model on some giant corpus of text. And then everyone else, you know, downloads or fine tunes the model towards some sort of task or just prompts the model directly through some, some API. And, um, you know, this is pretty a tried, tried and true, true, tried and true method. Um, but, uh, you know, with my, my, my thesis is, is really showing. Um, and one thing that I really argue is that, uh, the way that we scale into these massive data sets presents a lot of really important issues. Um, and you know, there's there's everything from you know legal risks um, associated with you know training on all of the internet. Basically, um, there's harmful behavior uh, that these models are very prone to sort of reproducing after being exposed to certain dark parts of the internet. And there's an extreme cost to scaling um, into into massive data sets. And you know, I, I don't expect the scaling part of it to go away in the next few iterations of language models. I expect them to be trained on trillions and trillions of tokens of text, but we still have to contend with these sorts of trade-offs. Uh, yeah. So uh, just to retreat on the socio aspect, because I think, you know, like it's in the socio-technical approaches is what, uh, what you're referring to your methods. Um, what is, let's like pick one specific example of like the ways in which uh, you know, the, the current way we're training language models are uh, problematic. I, I want to um, invite you to uh, like elaborate a bit on one of the slides in your in your thesis um, defense where it was talking about this study that you did uh, comparing, like cor correlating different school uh, systems or different different neighborhoods uh, with the, uh, like how well, how does how much does the language model approve of the uh, you know like the school work like the, that came out of it? Yeah, so um, so so one of the one of the big aspects um, of language model kind of data uh, curation and, and and training that I highlight is this fact that you know we we tend to curate data for language models in a fashion that's called laissez-faire, and uh, the idea there is that you know we want to train on as much data as possible on basically source from the internet but as we scale it becomes harder and harder to know what exactly is in our training data right and we have to make some we, we have some does like you know um, criteria that we have for 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 these corporate you know we want them to not contain a lot of toxic language we probably don't want a lot of ads there. We want to remove some, maybe like you know the, the, the boilerplate sort of HTML content that we don't really want our language models to see. Um, and so we apply these things called quality filters to 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 the data. And these tend to be kind of either heuristically um, driven sort of systems. You know, maybe you want to remove really short content in, in the training data or something like that. You can also apply classifiers, right? Um, that are basically trained to identify some notion of like high quality content. Um, and so this is a almost universal sort of procedure for, for, for curating the training data for, for large language models. And uh, one thing that we dig into in our thesis is this idea that um, when you apply these sorts of quality filters, you introduce these sort of implicit ideologies of what it means to be high quality text, right? And this goes back to like, there's been since the 80s. There's been lots of work on how 
humans kind of decipher what it means to have good or bad language and how that can lead to a lot of stigmatization in, um, in the community. Um, you know, bias in the legal system, the educational system, things like that. Um, in the context here, what we argue is that these ideologies, which we don't really, are, we're not very transparent about, can actually lead to lots of unintended consequences about whose data is actually in this training data, right? And so um, the way we kind of empirically kind of analyze this is by um, curating this new data set of uh, high school newspapers from across the, the United States. Um, and we basically um, match those newspapers and, and the articles within them uh, to demographic information around the school and the county and the zip code that kind of the, the, the school resides in. And uh, we basically reproduce this quali a quality filter that was used to curate the GPT-3 uh, training corpus. Um, and then we apply that quality filter to this uh, data set of high school newspapers. And the basic question is like, who gets filtered out? Who gets um, who gets included? Right? Can I clarify something here? You mentioned a filter used for GPT-4, but I thought the GPT-4 filter is private. How do you know? Oh, uh, sorry. I said the, the GPT-3 quality filter, which was actually they 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 published the implementation details of that quality filter, and so we we reproduced it internally. Got it. Got it. Perfect. And the high school uh, newspapers are written by students primarily. I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. So there's all student written papers, um, and they'll cover everything. You know, they'll cover everything from like you know sports articles to like you know general news in the world to you know campus announcements and you know um, uh, certain school related things. Uh, so it, it covers a broad, pretty broad range of, uh, of topics, but they are they are written by students. <laughs> I imagine it's a lot more transparent and. Uh you know, anti-political compared to the high-profile newspaper agencies that we actually read every day. Actually, like this, this actually goes to one of the takeaways of the work is, um, you know, one thing that we find is that, you know, the, the quality scores that you get for an article are really well correlated with how well-resourced the school is. And um, it's also very correlated with like how similar the articles are to like, Newswire or like, you know, the New York Times or, or Wall Street Journal, Journal articles, right? And, you know, one thing we argue is that like schools that are more resourced and they have much more um, kind of capability to provide uh, an environment in which a, a student can actually like practice being a journalist, right? And write about, you know, the topics of the world and current events that you might actually see on the New York Times, those tend to have more high quality content according to the that this this quality filter right so there's this sort of a relationship between how similar the content is to newswire and thus like you know how how well resourced the school is right so the implication here is that uh, we are maybe inadvertently suppressing the information that is very real and very valid and very high quality but it does not represent um, you know like the more mainstream voices in the society yeah, so so I guess put succinctly, like we basically argue that these quality filters, uh, based on the notions of quality that we kind of imbue um, when we train those those quality filters, uh, they tend to uh, overrepresent the authors from very hegemonic social positions. Um, you know, authors that tend to be in urban areas, authors that tend to be in wealthy parts of the United States. Um, authors uh, that are 
in zip codes that are very well educated. And um, it tends to implicitly uh, not favor content from rural areas, from areas that are less resourced. Um, so what we argue is that there's always subjectivity when you're curating data. And because we're not transparent, and it's very difficult to be transparent about kind of what decisions were made when you're curating the data uh, at scale, um, you're going to have all these sorts of unintended consequences. So um, kind of kind of stepping back a bit, you know, with all these like amazing things that these models are able to do, uh, there's kind of this broad perception that, you know, these models are in some sense a like general purpose, right? And they're kind of all all encompassing, they might be all powerful. Uh, they might you, you might think that, oh, they can do basically anything. And what we argue is in, in this work is that there is no such thing as a general purpose model. There's no such thing as a general purpose corpus because a curator always has some ideology of like, for example, what it means to be high quality or um, what, what text should be included and what text should not, right? And that necessarily means that this data set is constrained in some way, right? And the, thus the model is constrained in some way. Um, so thank you for highlighting that. I love that line of work because it emphasizes a much broader, um, you know, like pattern I've seen in science in general, where, you know, like the people who do the work are empowered, are privileged to make choices. And those choices reflect their biases, which is a little bit un uninvit inevitable. Um, but I guess it sounds like, you know, an existential crisis you know like okay no we cannot fix it so what did you do yeah so so what what i've always argued is that um customization and adaptation and flexibility is something that we should really focus on with these models because it's going to be impossible to build a general model that is you know a one-size-fits-all sort of system for everyone so let's instead assume that, you know, okay, we'll get to a really good checkpoint, you know, with the initial pre-training phase that, you know, uh, Meta or, or OpenAI might do. But like afterwards, we really need ways to um, kind of customize the model to anyone's use case, right? And so a lot of my work has really focused on how do we do that really efficiently? How do we think about language variation and, and domains in training data? Um, and apply boundaries between kind of different data sets and, and language variations um, to do this customization more more effectively. Um, so yeah, so so we've worked on a lot of different areas of work in that direction. I think that the, the most popular thing that we've worked on is this idea of adaptive pre-training. And basically it's really simple. It's this idea of just continuing to pre-train your model on a, a downstream corpus, right? Um, and this, the, the technique is very simple, um, but uh, there's so many really, really interesting questions there around, you know, what does it mean to be a domain? What does it mean to, uh, like, how do you how do you customize things efficiently? Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of a, a, a kind of a second big thrust of, of the thesis. <laughs> what would be the, like, a surprising result that you got in this uh, line of work? Uh, and I know you've written so many papers. I, I, I probably read only, a quarter of them. I apologize, but um, I'm I'm really impressed by the impact that you the work you, that you did um, you know have achieved, and you know congrats on that. And with it, often comes a surprising result. So, what of, what is one of the surprising results in your adaptive pre-training methods? Yeah, so I think the, the coolest thing uh, that I found is is this idea of like 
that the domains and language variation comprise some sort of spectrum of different granularities, right? So this basically what we found is that like to get the best performance on a particular task, you don't just want to adapt to the task. Um, you want to do this sort of multi-stage approach where you first adapt to the domain or the sort of uh, variation of language that this task might reside in, and then kind of start fine tuning on more and more specific data uh, related to the task. And I've been really excited about this sort of like spectrum idea um, when it comes to organizing data. And you know, in work since then, we've kind of adapted this idea to uh, time where, uh, you know, to, to get the best performance of a model on a specific time period, you want to adapt to like the year that the model uh, the, the, that the data um, sort of locates to, then the month that the uh, data locates to, then the, the day. Uh, we've adapted this idea to like languages, right, in the multilingual setting, where maybe you first adapt a model to like a language family and then specific languages, and then maybe a domain within the language, right? So, um, yeah, I think like this this adaptive pre training step um, was, or, or this, this work was really cool um, in that it kind of pushed me to think about like how data is organized in this kind of structured way um, and how you can make use of that to just get better performance. And uh, you know, that is aligned with your next, you know, role at Llama, but most people are not there. So how can the average research team that does not have like the insane, you know, resources that you guys have in Llama, benefit from these results do you um and let me clarify actually a question like uh, a clarification you mentioned before customization and adaptation are you referring to them as uh, kind of like different things or synonyms uh, when you mention customization and adaptation oh i i um i think of them as analogous terms um i think the way that you can adapt is is different but like the goal is basically to customize the model towards a specific behavior <laughs> So I would like to draw a line between the kind of adaptation that one needs to be in a high resource environment that basically the team that has the cap capacity to train, mm -hmm. to retrain a model from scratch or something like that to uh, compare to methods that are useful for you know the rest of us. What uh, I, so I want to actually like zero in more on the on the latter because I think that's relevant to more people. Um, would you elaborate on like what found, what did you find to be useful for the latter? Yeah, totally. So. Um... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the natural kind of um, thing to do in a low resource setting is something like using parameter efficient techniques, right? You could use adapters or just fine tune like parts of the model, um, maybe just to feed forward layers of a transformer or something like that um, towards your task. Um, this does depend on having access to model parameters. And, you know, with a lot of systems, you're not really able to do that. Um, there's more black box techniques for adapting models to new distributions um, using like retrieval. So um, we've kind of worked on approaches where you are basically, you, you basically like um, adapt the model to a new behavior by um, retrieving sort of relevant examples for your downstream task or or, or your domain and you stick it into the prompt of, of uh, as, or as additional demonstrations um, when you're querying the model. Um, one thing I've been excited about uh, in terms of like cheap adaptation techniques is this idea of interpolating between um, models and uh, to, to, to basically induce new behaviors. 
So we had this work last year around um, some, something we call task arithmetic. And basically the idea there is uh, to, when you want to adapt your model to a particular behavior, you can fine tune the model um, towards a particular behavior. Let's say, let's, let's make it a little more concrete. Like let's say I want to make my model like less toxic. Um, so maybe the, in this task arithmetic setting, you can basically, you, you basically fine tune the model towards non-toxic text. And then you subtract the weights of your fine-tuned model from your pre-trained model, okay? And you get something we call a task vector, right? This is basically a direction and movement towards like non-toxic behavior. Um, and what we find is that you can actually, with this task vector, you can basically, you can merge or compose or interpolate that task vector with other task vectors, right? So let's say now I want to create a model that is uh, you know, a, a non-toxic like chat model, right? What I would do is I would find to, I have my like, you know, non-toxic task vector that I've already uh, retrieved. Then I also fine tune a model towards chat, right? And then I do the same subtraction and I get like a chat vector. And what we find is that you can interpolate these two vectors together. You can get a model that actually is both non-toxic and can chat. Um, wow. and so, yeah. So like, kind of you, you get these sort of multitasking behaviors by like merging these these sorts of task vectors together and um the really cool thing there is it's really expensive to, to pre-train right um and to do continued pre-training and when you do continue pre-training you have these sort of catastrophic forgetting effects right um where you forget like what you've previously seen in this sort of task vector modular sort of framework you can basically compose whatever task vector you want towards the behavior um, that you desire, and you still have other task vectors lying around so that you can kind of modulate your model's behavior as you want after training. Um, and so, yeah, so like these, these sorts of modular ways of, of, of adapting behavior, I think is really cool. And I think can lower the barrier for, for adapting um, to, or customizing to new behaviors. So that's a little bit mind blowing um, that it works. I mean, it's, it sounds like a cool idea, but you know, I would say, yeah, try it. But you know, it actually works. And you know, I know when you say it works, I, you've done you've done the due diligence. Um, I guess one thing that is unclear to me is like, what is the skill or what is the? How do you specify this vector? Is it uh, a vector that includes all the dimensions in the entire model parameter space, or is it? something has that has to do with the input vector or something that has to do with the output vector correct yeah so and it's the former so in, in the works we've done so far we've the the vector is um basically the direction of movement for all parameters of the model towards this particular data set or, or this behavior um but presumably with like i don't know with like laura or other sort of parameter efficient techniques um you could do similar stuff um in, in sort of a low rank regime maybe it's more efficient but we haven't explored that yet <laughs> Cool. Which also means that if you're using all the parameters, you can also probably do some uh, filtering or like you know only optimize a subset of them, and you get a little a bit of the of that effect. That's fantastic that it that it works. Uh, I'm a little bit surprising. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's really cool. Like we've we've uh, explored this kind of idea for not only tasks but like adapting over time, and you can basically we've done some like wild things of like extrapolating to new time periods by interpolating these sorts of what we call time vectors that are specialized to different uh, time periods. Um, we've, we've kind of looked at it, the same idea with respect to like domain specific models that are 
uh, maybe specialized to you know biomedical papers and like computer science papers or like news and you can basically compose these sorts of vectors together to um to compose their the the behaviors they would expect from models okay. that to each domain well what is the failure story here is there anything that you tried that didn't work for, like in terms of adaptation for with this method yeah so so basically one thing that we found is that uh like model merging it basically approximates ensembling models in output space um but it doesn't work as well in terms of the performance so like if i if i really cared about like how uh low my perplexity is on documents that like are in our like non-toxic chat example are like chats that are non-toxic <laughs> like a merger of those like i'm better off like having models that are having models that are specialized to both kind of um you know non-toxic text and 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 chat and then having them active uh during inference and then composing their outputs at inference time rather than doing the sort of merge um it's more expensive to do the ensembling but it actually works a lot better so um i think it's kind of a neat trick um to to kind of make uh inference cheaper when you have like lots of these different vectors or, or models around that you want to kind of um Kind of merge together to get a very specific behavior but there's still a lot of work to be done to like um figure out how to merge properly so that you can bridge this gap between like ensembling the models and and actually merging them um, so to clarify the, the the thing that didn't work is still like using the task vectors for the toxicity or is that is that what you're what you're saying yeah, I'm, I'm saying in, in broadly speaking like um if i was trying to merge two models or two time or two task vectors or whatever there um i'm much better off actually having both of those task vectors or models like online and then ensembling them uh at inference time gotcha. rather than kind of collapsing them into like a single vector or model that i that i then deploy uh, yeah. <clears throat> thank you um so i want to retract uh, so um kind of like you um like accidentally give me like a map uh, to like, you know, yes, no questions. Are you somebody who's able to pre-train from scratch? Yes, then you do that. Don't stop pre-training. Like that, your work has shown that it's effective, but you also mentioned catastrophic forgetting as a problem there. Well, how do you deal with it in, in your work uh, on that? Yeah, so for, for, for catastrophic forgetting, um, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard issue. And I think like, I think it, part of it depends on like us defining like, what do we want to use these models for, right? Because there's always going to be, there's no free lunch, right? Like if I, if I fine tune a model to more specialized text, I'm going to do worse on like other distributions of text. Um, but uh, if you want a model that does lots of different things, um, one thing we found to be really effective is this idea of um, parameter expansion. So this idea of like basically growing your model with more parameters that are specialized to different distributions of text and then like either ensembling or merging them at inference time when you need to, right? So for example, if I want a model that does, um, you know, it, it does well at, you know, both biomedical papers and can also do autocomplete on like news or whatever, then I'm better off having parameters that are specialized to both of those different domains, keeping them active, and then ensembling at inference time or, or maybe merging those parameters when I need to, rather than having a single model that, that can kind of um, do both. So um, 
in, in a lot of works, we've kind of explored this sort of um, mixture of experts sort of paradigm um, for uh, for creating these sort of multi-domain systems. Um, and I think that's a really exciting area of work um, that I'm hoping I can kind of continue um, pursuing in the future. Uh, in terms of like the, in terms of the, um, the cost to actually do these sorts of um, experiments, I think obviously training a scale is always really difficult. Um, but one thing we've sort of envisioned with this kind of framework is, especially with the sort of parameter expansion idea, is that maybe in the future, like instead of there being one giant dense model that like everyone has access to, we actually have lots of tiny, maybe specialized expert models that are fine-tuned to different behaviors or tasks or domains based on everyone's sort of individual interests that are kind of shared among the community, right? And it's more decentralized. And um, the hope there is that the training of an individual expert model is not as expensive as training from scratch. And you can kind of benefit from the compute and, and training that other people have done on their own expert models yeah. and maybe merge or ensemble them with your, you know, with, with, with the expert that you've trained uh, to get better performance on your task. So uh, I'm hoping that like with a more collective or community sort of language model, um, the, the costs of actually doing pre-training and continuing to pre-train on new text will actually be much lower than it is today. So isn't this already what we have in uh, Hugging Face, for example, you'll find a ton of different models that were adapted from Llama or another open source uh, model. Is this already kind of like happening? I know you're like in your thesis, you're advocating for a specific way of doing that. But I, I, I mean, from what you're describing, like what do you mean, what do you mean by decentralized large language models? It sounds like it's already happening in some capacity and you're encouraging the community to go further in that direction. Yeah, I totally agree. I think Hugging Face has been like a really great boon in this direction. Like they've built a great platform for model sharing and 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 this sort of collaboration. I think there could be a lot more structure uh, around that system, where um, mostly if you if you look at what is being and you know we've done this analysis actually like if you look at what's being uploaded to Hugging Face and actually shared, they tend to be really tiny models that are um, trained on very specific. Uh, tasks that may not be broadly useful. Um, you know, having a system of kind of sharing models of a variety of different sizes and um, with uh, broad sets of tasks that people care about and having this ability to maybe like, you know, if I have a particular data set in mind, I upload the data set and the server just returns to me the best sets of experts or the best language model or merger of experts that are optimized for my particular data set. Like that sort of system is something that I think would be really, really cool. Um, Great. I hope so. One of the people who are listening to this are like looking for their next project and like just jump on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, one one other thing, and you know, one other thing that I've been really excited about with respect to decentralization is uh, for users to have much stronger control over the data coverage of their model. Right. Right now, even if I download a model on Hiking Face, I don't actually know what it's been trained on, and um, I don't know, you know. Um, how that well, I don't know exactly what the behavior of that model is going to be at test time. Um, and one thing I've been really excited about is this idea of like a user being able to shape the data coverage of a language model after training, right? Um, and this kind of 
brings me to some some work that we that we recently published um, called Silo, which is uh, a work that is really trying to build those capabilities into these systems through this sort of decentralization. Um, could you tell us more about Silo? It's so I, I do remember that slide, but I, I wouldn't be able to articulate it myself. So uh, would you mind elaborating a bit? Yeah, totally. So um, so the standard way that people train models on uh, data is, as I mentioned, laissez-faire. Um, it is also dense, right? So basically, we update all the model parameters with respect to all of that data, right? And we tend to scale pretty indiscriminately on web crawl, right? And the thing we were interested in this work was this idea that there's lots of legal risks, right, associated with training on uh, uh, copyrighted data. And that's, these, these things are being sorted out in the courts right now. We'll see what happens. Um, but we really need ways for me as a data owner to be able to say, hey, I don't want this model to know my website anymore. And for whatever reason, and the model should forget it, right? But we have no way of actually guaranteeing that sort of behavior without actually retraining that model from scratch. And this, I think, comes back to this idea of like centralized laissez-faire kind of methods of training, right? Like there's no way for me as a data owner to, to kind of shape uh, the data coverage of the model after training, right? Um, and this gets even more important if you're like New York Times or another publishing organization that wants to remove all of your content from GPT-4 or Llama Right, uh, there's no way for you to do that without the model, you know, being re retrained from scratch. So, uh, what we actually propose is, what if you train a model on data that we broadly consider to be low risk, right? And there's lots of different definitions of it. This is another kind of subjective curation criteria, right? Um, what we consider in the in the work to be low risk are permissively licensed text, text that has like you know a um, that is in the public domain or has a permissive software license on it. What if you pre-train the model only on that data, and then you scale into like copyrighted news, common crawl, uh, private content on the internet, you know, private health records, like whatever we feel to be useful uh, to generalize into at inference time through non-parametric data stores. So non-parametric data stores are basically just um, uh, you know, collections or representations of the sort of text that we consider to be high risk that we retrieve at inference time. And we don't actually train model parameters on it, okay? So um, you can retrieve from the data store through lots of different ways. Like you can retrieve these representations and stick it into like the, the context of the prompt and just continue prompting a model. Or uh, they're, they're, they're slightly more um, involved kind of versions of this. Um, Han and LM is another kind of popular way of doing it. Anyway, uh, if you so, so basically, we're trying to see if you tr if you train in this more careful way, where you only train on like permissive text and then like scaled into everything else through retrieval, can you actually build a good language model? Like, is it as good as like the densely trained laissez-faire models that we are currently using? And the answer is that like in terms of um, kind of perplexity on like held out data sets as well as like few shot sort of um, task performance you can actually do really well. Like you actually get very competitive results with um, this, the, with a laissez-faire approach. Um, but there are some limitations. It comes at a cost, right? To You have to do this sort of retrieval step and um, sort of similarity search um, at inference time. So that kind of slows down inference a lot. Um, 
I'm, I'm really excited about this sort of general idea because I think it can provide a lot of really cool features, right? If I'm New York Times and I want my data to be removed from the model, I can basically just remove my data from the data store and the model, because it has never been, it's never been, the parameters have never seen the New York Times articles, like it has verifiably forgotten New York Times, right? Um, I, so as a user, I can opt out from the model. In the future, we could also, maybe we could pay data owners um, for using their content at inference time, right? So, uh, because basically the way that inference works, uh, you always have to retrieve content from the data store before actually making the prediction. So I can say, hey, to predict this next token, I've used these K documents in my data store, right? And then I can pay the data owners for that um, for that prediction. So yeah, it's sort of lofty visions, but I, I feel like this kind of comes back to this idea of decentralization, right? Um, and kind of empowering users to, to have this kind of power over the, the data coverage of the model. <laughs> I mean, I agree with everything you said, except the lofty vision piece, because um, now is the right time. Like, there's, it's really like in the news, everybody knows the case between um, uh, OpenAI and the New York Times. It's it's just, you know, it's as high stakes as it gets, which is a good time to solve it. And it sounds like you're, you know, like, of course, you're not the only person who's working on this or have proposals for this, but at least you have hard evidence that this works. and. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, hopefully somebody also like listening to this can like take action. If uh, you know, like I don't know, like if is this something that you plan to continue working on? Uh, you know, in the next few months. I would love to. Um, I I think there's uh, there's we did a lot of there, there's there was success in the initial work. I think there's lots of really interesting um, things to do to build on this idea. Um, so one idea is that we didn't really explore um, kind of generation quality with this sort of approach. And um, there are lots of really amazing things that you know these dense models can do uh, that we didn't really predict they were able to do, um, would be able to do. And I, I think there's lots of work to, to kind of show that the sort of retrieval um, augmented um, kind of language modeling approach can um, do these amazing things as well. So a lot of, a lot of questions around evaluation. Um, I think inference speed is probably the biggest issue. Um, you know, how do you speed up kind of inference when you have a data store that's like you know a terabyte in size, right? Um, that you have to do search over to to kind of predict the next token, right? Uh, there's probably lots of simple things you can do to speed that up, but um, yeah, I I feel like there's lots of low hanging fruit to to kind of explore. And it's something that I'm really excited about. I think how these court decisions end up playing out will govern a lot about kind of what we can actually train parameters on. Um, and, you know, there might be a world where, like, actually, you know, everything, you know, all of common crawl is considered fair use, right? And even, But even in that scenario, I think kind of segmenting training data and making sure you don't train parameters on certain texts is really useful because, you know, if I'm a enterprise and I want you know, my uh, private company data to be used by the model, but not kind of trained on, then this retrieval approach, I think, is still relevant, you know? Um, and so I mean, look, from my perspective, in the, like in the industry, it's it's actually quite popular already. Like the RAG is the primary way products actually make meaningful use of large language models these days. Uh, there's like a lot of details on like how exactly to do it, and some are better than others, or some are faster than others. Um, especially the retrieval component, I'd say, uh, is something that is 
currently still underexplored. It's but there's a ton of work on it. Uh, that's the good news. So we, we talked about the like the type of people who are pre-training, you know, like from scratch, and you know, like don't start pre-training because they're forgetting what to do about it. But then we and we talked about uh, people who don't, you know, like you want to do very cheap tricks basically. And you know, like I love that the task vectors and task arithmetic work. There's like this middle ground, which is actually a decent size of the population of developers and machine learning practitioners who are uh, using large language models, which they have access to parameters. Mm -hmm. They're not interested in pre-training from scratch. They may be doing some task-specific uh, tuning, you know, uh, instruction tuning. Any advice or like uh, learnings from your work for that kind of people? Yeah, I, I, I think um, the main advice is that data is probably the um, key thing to focus on. And I think in terms of like curating more data, um, thinking very closely about the um, your, your notion of quality around that data. Um, and um, yeah, thinking of creative ways of getting more text that is like in domain or like relevant for your task, right? And you can go a really, really long way by uh, getting like having lots of data that's like very specific to your task and even just training you know a, a few parameters uh, on that right and um, I think in general over the next few years you know data is probably going to be king um, in, in the community I think you know the, the not only in terms of scaling to as much data as possible but also just like thinking more closely about like what it means to be task relevant, domain relevant, and what are the right curriculums to train uh, models on. And I think like the more careful we are about our data and, and like the more knowledge we have around um, the, the, the data that we're training on, the fewer resources we need to, to kind of uh, do effective pre-training. Um, so yeah, I think it's relevant for not just the small timer uh, who has like, you know, one GPU, uh, but also the, the the big players in the field that you know are have hundreds of thousands of H100s, right? So, um, yeah, data data is key. <laughs> awesome. On that note, thank you so much, Sachin, for joining us today. I uh, really uh, enjoyed uh, this conversation. Thank you so much.